Yeah, because I've we always some... written stop after three days. And, Absolutely, and, that and that's not, a very safe way to approach it. That's a yeah. that's a very safe. And, and I think, but I think we do forget that not everyone is as familiar with drugs as we are. Yep. And yeah. then not everyone knows how these drugs are work um, work or what. They're Welcome to episode thirty-two of the Opson Gani Cricket Podcast. Okay, welcome back, everyone. I've got Sonia for part two of their, um, her sort of uh, tips and tricks for um, acute pain and managing in-hospital pain issues. Thanks for coming back, Sonia. Um, no problem. So uh, the second part of this is we're going to discuss another case, which uh, a hypothetical case which I put together and then uh, sort of going to ask Sonia for her advice. Mm-hmm. So I'll just read out the hypothetical, Sonia. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're called to see a 33-year-old woman on the postnatal ward for advice regarding her pain management. Um, so she had a caesarean section under spinal anesthesia overnight. Um, it was an emergency for fetal distress and her child is now in the NICU on CPAP. So pretty um, pretty stressful. Mm. Um, she has been asking for buprenorphine every two hours and the midwife wants some help as she's now had about seven or eight doses over the last 18 hours and mm. you know she's, she's asking for a lot of um, opioids. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Uh, so the first question I had is, uh, what's the what sort of important history and risk factors do you want to ask? So there's probably there's a bit of crossover, I think, from the last case we discussed. Yeah, so I guess because we're talking about the management of her pain, um, assuming there's no um, anatomical, biological pathology, uh, you want to know... I mean, first off, this woman is at high risk of persistent post-surgical pain. She's at an emergency operation. She's had a caesarean section. They're both high-risk procedures. Um, she, her, her child is unwell and is in the NICU, so she's very unwell. So most people going through this situation would be highly anxious um, and, you know, their sympathetic nervous system would be turned on. Yep. She <clears throat> has been escalating or using a lot of opioids, which is a bit concerning. So things that I would want to know is, is this a new issue? And does she have a history of pain? Does she have a, I'd be even more concerned if she had a history of um, regular high dose opioid use. Um, Does she have a history of a substance use disorder is important. Does she have a history of being a chemical copa? Um, Because that is is something that requires more complex uh, pain management. Okay. And so, and you mentioned as well, so I guess uh, uh, sort of, um, checking that there's no surgical pathology because sometimes it can be a hematoma or um, some something uh, absolutely and that obviously and that needs to, to be dealt so with. Someone's got to look at her tummy and, and have mm. exclude that. So assuming mm. that there is no surgical pathology, which is the next part of my question, mm. she tells you she does have a history of anxiety mm. uh, and a, a history of using cannabis and alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um, and then she was and she is really upset mm. and anxious. You know, you ask her how's her baby going, and she's sort of in bursts into tears, and yep. um, she's upset about the whole thing. It, yeah. it all happened so fast, and now she's you know not feels like she's lost control of um, yeah. Lots of things. So what sort of non-pharmacological strategies should we consider employing in this, uh, yeah. at this point? And then I will talk about sort of maybe um, pharmacology in the next bit. Okay, sure. Yeah, no, I, w- I was going to say that we shouldn't exclude, like there are a lot of drug therapies that might be helpful here as well. Yeah. But um, non-pharmacological... Well, we can do that first if you want. You oh, want no, th- oh yeah. that's, that's fine. I think, you know, when you're approaching someone like this who has been using a lot of, um, you know, strong opioids and it's not helping... Um, then it may be that non-pharmacological strategies here are the key. 
So um, I think most people undergoing this kind of situation would be feeling anxious. So um, acknowledging that is important to her um, to help establish yep. your rapport. But with someone with a history of anxiety, especially if it's been poorly controlled, they already have less reserves. So they have less reserves to deal with any kind of catastrophe or ca- you know chaos or interruption to their life. Uh, as well as her history of cannabis and alcohol use. So she does have a history of multiple substance use or yeah, substance use disorders. So non-pharmacological strategies I'd be looking at is, um, you know, education is really important for these women. Reassurance is very important. Really simple things like allowing her to see pictures of her baby, allowing her to go visit her baby yep. can be very effective and far more effective than drugs in some patients. Um, offering support and that may be as simple as um, you know supportive encouraging words or um, as formal as referring her to social work um, clinical psychology input uh, you know may be helpful for reduction of anxiety and also education about self-reduction of anxiety um, yeah, and then there's there's a lot of pharmacological strategies we could employ here as well Okay, so um, I think that was my next question. So what advice do you have in regards to managing your escalating opioid requests and uh, what yeah. other pharmacological strategies so I uh, think, can we look at? I think I would say you know, seven to eight doses of buprenorphine, you know, depending on the dose you're giving, if it's 400 micrograms in 18 hours, that's well in, you know, beyond. That's enough to saturate her receptors if she's opioid naive. If she's opioid tolerant, that's a slightly different story. So that's what I would like to clarify. Um, but yep. well, advice she, yeah, I, I would think... give is to stop escalating, basically, <laughs> in a simple terms. And, and I would educate. So I'd educate the patient as well as the um, staff looking after her, um, any of the nursing staff or um, pharmacists or you know doctors looking after her and, and, and discuss where to go from here because clearly if you're giving high doses of a drug and it's not working, um, we need to look at other options. Yep. So I would say you know, for safety reasons, um, we need to establish cl- uh, clear boundaries and um, we need to explore other options. That's right. So I mean, buprenorphine is a bit more forgiving than others, but mm-hmm. not, it's not impossible to. But cause it's safe severe... until it's very unsafe. That's right. Is what so I, any I opioid, people, so... you're looking at sort of respiratory depression, some that's sort right. of catastrophe if you're not careful. Yeah. So if she's taking it for. Um... Buprenorphine also has, you know, it, it's very high affinity for the opioid receptors. So if you do, if you do manage to give very, very high doses, it is actually quite difficult to reverse, even with naloxone. That's right, and uh, and then um, if you start adding another. Um, um, analgesic medications which are sedating and we, we could run into some sort of catastrophe in the middle of the night there yeah yeah so we've yeah. got to be very careful don't yeah we? absolutely all right so what uh, pharmacological strategies do you think we could um, consider yeah well the answer is always multimodal isn't it multimodal yes. and yep. opioid sparing give her everything you can safely at so safe which doses ones do you like and, and what are the pros and cons um yeah, so I th- yeah, oh so no, look absolutely. I think the anaesthetists who are listening will be well aware of drugs. We manage drugs very well as a group. Uh, multimodal is becoming more and more popular, and um, I see it on acute pain uh, service rounds at multiple hospitals. And um, you know, simple analgesia to start with. That's you know, this this concept has been around for at least twenty thirty years. Um, and you know, mixed opioids, uh, anti-inflammatories are, are important post-surgical. Um, even a short course of uh, dexamethasone, if it's not contraindicated, one or two doses yep. have been used effectively. Um, anti-inflammatories, un- unless she's got any um, 
contraindications for that. Yeah, so the most common is like through. preeclampsia, isn't it? In yeah, this, uh, in, this situation. in this scenario, yes, preeclampsia. Yeah. Um, I didn't put that in the scenario, but yeah. I, there's sometimes... Um, or even renal impairment, yeah, impending right. renal yeah, impairment for other reasons, yeah. Um, so there's, there are some uh, pharmacological options which are not necessarily going to be used all the time. Yeah, but, so things um, like clonidine and antineuropathic yeah. drugs, don't ignore them, especially if her, a child is, you know, um, premature in the NICU on CPAP, she's unlikely to be breastfeeding in the next few days. Yeah. Um, so so quite, quite a few of us are not as familiar with uh, the use of oral clonidine as perhaps you are. So do you want to maybe mm. just give us a bit of a... Uh, Absolutely. Overview on how you prescribe it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what, so what? it is becoming more commonly used in the world of pain medicine and in um, in, in in the world of um, addiction medicine as well. Which is, you know, I don't know if I mentioned it earlier, but that's another service that you might be able to offer this woman if she's had a history with substance use disorders. Yep. So um, in this patient, you know, clonidine's an alpha two agonist. So <laughs> very, you know, it can be quite a powerful um, high antihypertensive agent at the right dose as well as helping with uh, pain control and analgesia so um, the other thing is there is some evidence that it's helpful um, in ameliorating any withdrawal symptoms when you are trying to uh, come off an addictive substance so something like you know immediate cessation of alcohol or not so much cannabis there's less withdrawal um, physical withdrawal symptoms associated with that but clonidine can be helpful with that. Smoking cessation, it can be helpful. And opioid reduction as well, it can be a helpful adjunct. So when, say, for example, you saw a patient like this uh, hypothetical woman we've painted uh, here on the ward, would you, be lo- would you like, um, I mean, I worry a little bit about, I think oral clonidine will be something to consider, but I worry a little bit about maybe her blood pressure. Absolutely. And, and her level so of there's a little bit so of controversy about continuing oral um, clonidine uh, as an outpatient, giving sure. it to people, particularly people who have had a history of being chemical copers, which sounds like this woman has some risk factors for that. People with a history of substance use disorders, who, um, or people have has had a history of accidentally op- overdosing on their analgesic agents. So um, doing that with clonidine can be fairly dangerous and make you hypertensive, lose consciousness, do damage, physical damage from trauma and falling. Um, but I think in the hospital, if you're going to give it, um, in, inpatient is um, about as safe as you can, you yep. can be so with get, starting it. She's going to be getting regular observations yeah. taken by the midwifery staff. And For someone who's young, um, someone like her, you know, she's likely to actually be hypotensive after giving birth um, postnatally. Um, some anyone that has a blood pressure of you know sort of less than a hundred systolic, I'm pretty averse yeah. to charging. So, so as an Elisa, say for with. example, we've called after hours, or we're doing the pain, the acute pain round. Yeah. If we're thinking about giving oral clonidine, you we should probably have a look at the um, yeah. observation chart and see what her blood pressure and heart rate is. Yeah, see and, what the baseline is. Ask them simple questions. And if she looks a bit drowsy, maybe be a bit cautious too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Yep. But let's just say, for example, she is wide awake. She looks really ramped Yeah, if I thought she was a good candidate sympath- for sympathetically it. Sympathetically sort of wound up and yeah, anxious. Yeah, the classic doses we use are 25 to 50 micrograms, um, you know, BD, TDS, or even up to QID. Yep. So if you're worried about her borderline blood pressure and you're not sure, you could give her a test dose. Um, you could even do a small test dose of an IV and see how she goes. Um, I, I think if you're going to continue an oral regimen, you should give her a test dose of an oral yep. clonidine. And um, and someone like her, would you like uh, like a lot of our other medications, maybe just uh, write it up for uh, three days and then put... Uh, Put a stop date on it. Yeah, so I would treat it the way I treat it. any other analgesic or drug that I'm worried about um, safety in the patient's own hands. 
so or safety as an outpatient so educate the patient um, explain the role of this drug and have safety measures in place so that includes c states but that includes also having writing caveats in the medication chart such as withhold if drowsy or withhold if the blood pressure is beyond good advice yes so i don't think i've written the caveats but i have written the um so I have written it up, um, not, probably not that often. Yeah. I have written up, because I've we always some... written stop after three days. And, Absolutely, and, circled it, and not, that's a not very safe way to approach it. That's a, yeah. that's a very safe, and I think, but I think we do forget that not everyone is as familiar with drugs as we are. Yep. And, and then not everyone knows how these drugs are work, um, work or what their side effects are. Yeah. So the, the few times I've written it up, I never wanted anyone to go home on it. So I've circled mm. that no mm. for discharge. Uh, Look, we do send people home on this occasionally in the, yeah. you know, in the world of pain medicine. But it there does needs happen. to be like a conscious um, yeah. review by someone, doesn't it? Absolutely. Um, and what about, say, for example, you know, so that's one option. Mm-hmm. So, so this woman's been using lots of buprenorphine. What mm-hmm. about um, adding in a gabapentinoid? So Absolutely. that's probably maybe more common. I'm a big fan of the gabapentinoids. or something. Yeah, yeah. The issue with this case is postnatally, um, we don't routinely use it yep. because we're worried about um, the risk to the baby in, in breastfeeding transfer. Yep. So, so um, there is evidence that it's potentially unsafe and causes low birth weights antenatally, so it's sure. not very commonly prescribed. But postnatally, we can be a, a li- there's a little bit more leeway there. So there, are, there was a small study published in 2016, which was done in a, group, a small group of women. I think it was about 50 women um, who mm-hmm. had term babies and took a reasonable dose of pregabalin. Um, from memory, it was 150 milligrams, or right, 75 to 150 twice a day, so a decent yeah. dose, yeah, decent, moderate to dose of pregabalin and they studied um, maternal breast milk transfer and it was um, there was a minimal right so that's reassuring so that is very reassuring but um, when I do prescribe it I tell patients that I uh, ask them if they're breastfeeding I tell them and I also tell them it was done in term babies so if your baby is preterm we we aren't sure if if they might be affected or might be a bit sedated so um, yeah but I think in a patient like this gabapentinoids you know she's she's ideal her her baby is is in the NICU on CPAP is unlikely to be breastfeeding in the next couple of days um, she's clearly distressed um, she's at high risk of persistent post-surgical pain and gabapentinoids um, are one of the very few things that have been shown to reduce that mm. I think sometimes I'm not sure so we might get a few um, emails so they sometimes do um, express their breast milk and um, that is given to the baby yeah on, so uh, the important thing here is education and communication or, yeah. absolutely yeah. so they may well still um, yeah but it, it's easy if, if someone says look I'm not planning to breastfeed then it's yeah. much simpler <clears throat> yeah all right um, so I was going to ask you about some other stuff so there are yeah, some absolutely. other things so I guess the other things we um, have sometimes done is um, you have uh, intravenous ketamine or even intravenous lignocaine or lidocaine as we the new name uh, international so there's even less evidence for that for breastfeeding yeah that's right <laughs> yeah, so I mean those, those are a couple of other options we can add in uh, yeah that's sort absolutely of, that's probably good for people who are opioid tolerant aren't they? yes or, or people who are withdrawing yeah, <laughs> yeah uh, another option yeah and so um, I've rescued people not obstetric patients I must admit but um uh, patients who have failed um, opioids. I have seen r- dramatic lignocaine. reductions in, um, in in pain with you know a single bolus of lignocaine or or, yeah, yeah. or a small bolus my, of clonidine. I've seen a few very um, successful cases. I've put them in uh, our high dependency unit and s- given them intravenous lignocaine for twenty four hours, and the next day they've been dramatically better. Mm. One of them has said, "I had a, I've had this pain in my knee for the last five years, and the first time it hasn't hurt, mm-hmm. as well as her uh, abdomen was better from the acute." 
yeah, from her uh, um, gynecological surgery. But mm. um, but that but that involves ramping up care to you know putting them in an HDU and things. Yeah, so, and being so, safe about so it. That's, that, that's an option, but um, mm-hmm. we try these other things first, I guess. And we have got a little bit of time. So, I mean, uh, the other thing I wanted to touch base on or to get your thoughts on without mm-hmm. going into, I know this could open a can of worms. I'm <laughs> a bit worried. I'm um, <laughs> not sure we want to go on forever. But, okay. um, <laughs> but there are a lot of oral opioids out, uh, yes, oral indeed. opioid options now. So I maybe let's just keep it to the use in the acute pain setting in opioid naive patients. Mm-hmm. What do you think? So the the ones that I've seen uh, or, or are being used. So Anska have recently re- released yeah. a. Does um, it really matter Position what we statement use or... about the use of slow release opioids. Yes, so I, I must admit it's, I try. It's I generated try a it. lot of discussion. Yeah. Because that is a very strong position statement. Essentially, it's. A, I don't know if you've read it. Or I have uh, skimmed through it. Yeah. Yes, it's a not, very not strong position statement against the use of slow release opioids. Yep. post-surgically and um, I mean they are right the our prescriptions of slow-release opioids have increased um, and in some cases increased to inappropriate levels and they've written the position statement in response to the number of deaths from accidental overdoses and coroner's cases so so is this an issue though if you're sending people home on large slow-release doses quantities for long periods of time for uncertain periods of time yeah, yeah. whereas if you usually just use the case very modest or small doses yeah i think uh, for, for a i think that like three days yeah i hear i hear same, that they it? are releasing a, a, an addendum or you know a next another statement to clarify that they um that there are safer options so yeah. there are safer options available now such as tramadol and buprenorphine and tapentadol which are associated with much lower risks, uh, risk of respiratory which depression must, or accidental death. Yeah, that's, so I must say that, that, to be honest, I hardly ever prescribe in uh, hospitals now in, as, in patients anything other than those three drugs. Yeah, um, and that would be the safe, you reckon that would be safest a, options maybe just most ex- of the time. Briefly explain what the difference is um, with these different therapies for the listeners because some of our yeah, some of sure. our listeners aren't anesthetists uh, sure for the non-anesthetists out there the pros and cons yeah um, but obviously all opioids in the lot uh, shouldn't be you know you don't want patients on op- any opioid long term yeah um, but what are the advantages of these um those three drugs you well just the advantages are they offer another receptor that we can block <laughs> they offer yep. um, something different we can add to the mix when we've reached our limit with all the other multimodal options so that's that's the advantage. They're very strong. Um, in the right patients, they're very effective. Um, their uh, tramadol and tapentadol have antineuropathic actions as well, so they reduce yep. nerve pain, which is helpful in many many patients, particularly post-surgical. Um, and um, yeah, those are those are the advantages. Yeah, they just give you something else to help. And so um, tapentadol is a bit, probably one of the, the newer one there. So what, how's that different from tramadol? So, so it's, it's similar to tramadol. I believe it was produced from, you know, by the same sort of uh, company and people. Um, the pharmacology is, so tramadol works on three receptors, serotonergic, yep. it's noradrenergic, and it's opioid. Tapentadol works on just two. So it's taken out the serotonergic in response to the concerns about mixing tramadol with antidepressants, sure. which many of our chronic pain patients are on. Um, tapentadol, so because tapentadol is, it only acts on the opioid and the nor, and it receptors and it noradrenergic, it is actually a much um, stronger opioid. So right. 
in terms of equal, like equal potency, it's actually twice as strong as tramadol, which is why it's Schedule 8 in Australia and tramadol is a Schedule 4, so it's less so, restricted. So we want to be careful about um, respiratory depression. Yeah, absolutely want to be careful about and respiratory depression. And I have run into even anaesthetists who sort of feel like the dosing schedule should be exactly the same for tramadol and tapentadol, and that's certainly not true. Tapentadol yeah. is twice as strong. And the advantage of buprenorphine, so one thing I like about it is it's sublingual. So, mm, um, mm. so that's, that's useful for people who are, say, for example, um, well, not uh, yeah. able to swallow tablets. Yep. Um, uh, but it's also and it a comes in a patch. Uh, that's true, yeah. And, um, and it's also a mixed agonist antagonist, isn't it? Yep. So tell us the and advantage it's, of that. And it's the drug of choice for, you know, people with substance use disorders. And, yep. yeah, it's long-acting. You know, you can get a long-acting version and you can get a very quick-acting version, which is very helpful. So the advantages of the buprenorphine, it's a partial opioid agonist, so, um, and it has a ceiling effect. So m- most of the anaesthetists will be getting bored by this part of the, <laughs> the discussion. I'm, sh- I'm sure they could you know, recite this in their sleep. Um, but because it doesn't sort of, it's a sold, because it has a ceiling effect, it, do- it isn't associated with um, as much respiratory depression as the other sort uh, the other complete yeah. agonists. Yeah, so never say never. Opioids. You can still stop someone so, breathing with buprenorphine, but it's harder to do it. Yeah, and the the thing <laughs> the thing about buprenorphine, you know, if, yeah, that that we mentioned earlier, I can't remember whether we mentioned it in this case or the one before, was it is what I'm what what I teach um, juniors coming through. It is very very safe until it's not safe, and they're not always aware of that. So it is it has an extremely high affinity. So it really loves that opioid receptor once it's on there. It's very hard to displace it. You yeah. just have to wait for the body to clear it and el- eliminate it. Um, um, yeah, even with naloxone, we've had trouble. <laughs> yeah, that's a bit scary. So yeah, yeah. Absolutely. All right, well, that's great. So if, um, there's some really useful pearls, some great tips um, no for people out there, and especially the, um, you know, I think, you know, those non-pharmacological strategies are good. But yeah, and, and, and I, that's, I it, feel like we focused on that a bit, but um, it's the it's the area that we maybe don't do quite as well. Pharmacological yeah. strategies, I, the, just looking around and looking around at, 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 pra- at general practice um, in the hospital um, and, you know, prescribing practices on the acute pain rounds, we do drug management pretty well. Yeah. I feel there's the one, maybe the one thing we haven't talked about is how to leverage the use of the placebo effect or a positive language, you know. Yeah. Um, absolutely we've run out of time and, oh, <laughs> next time next time Roger I'm, really, I'm not sure I'm an expert in it but I definitely have been I will just about say it the placebo effect is powerful in chronic pain you tell yes. someone I'm going to give the you something the nocebo trial gonna... we did at King Eddie's or the one published in the pain journal in 2009 I'd refer you know listeners to so powerful the power of your so, words and right. placebo so, so the opposite of placebo being nocebo incredible telling, telling people something that's going to be bad is, is Distraction not, not therapies, <laughs> level one evidence that they're effective in acute pain. Yep. Great. Distraction therapies in children, amazing. Work as well as opioids in some cases. Yeah. yeah. Um, giving them some sugar to... Giving to, them an to, iPhone uh, or a... That's right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> sugar. That, that, yeah. that works with adults as well as children. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you again, Sonia. You're welcome. <laughs> Hi everyone, one final note to finish the episode. So last week we had a quiz, um, which I thought would be entertaining, anaesthetist or serial killer. So there's a picture of an individual uh, on the site, which um, I'm putting up again this week. And um, 
Unfortunately, it was actually a bit of a dismal failure because I didn't get any responses at all. Um, I think it was a little bit too hard or maybe you guys just weren't entertained by it. But anyway, I've, I'm going to make one last-ditch attempt to try and rescue it from abject failure. Um, I have put some clues in the form of a very small, short crossword, um, which will give you a few of the letters in his name. And then uh, maybe with um, the power of the internet, you'll be a, someone, someone out there will be able to figure out who it is and uh, tell us whether this person is, in fact, an anesthetist or a serial killer. Okay, looking forward to your responses. Thanks again. See you next week. Thanks for listening, everyone. Please go to the iTunes menu and subscribe to the show if you like it. Write a review. This will also help us uh, get seen by other listeners on the iTunes menu. If you're also interested, please go to our website at www.opsandguidingcritcare.org where there will be lots of show notes and links to uh, interesting videos related to the topic that you've just listened to. See you again next time.